Survival. How we doing? Everybody thawed out yet? All right, good. Good. I, I have a couple things I uh, want to draw your attention to. I know Stephen already mentioned this, uh, but just as an aspect of uh, serving one another and loving your neighbor well, uh, loving your brothers and sisters well, uh, we do need some additional nursery workers, uh, particularly during the Sunday school hour. Um, Karen and I are going to sign up for a slot, uh, so we need, uh, we need some additional help, though. Uh, to, to uh, help provide care for some of these uh, precious little ones that are, are coming uh, during Sunday school. So uh, if you would, uh, would help us out there. Uh, also, with reference to the Wild Game Feast, um, tickets are going fast. And if you want to come, I need to know that you're coming. Um, I sold 15 tickets in between Sunday school and the service. <laughs> okay. Um, so things are, things are moving right along. Uh, we have 220 tickets of, uh, total that we will sell. We're up to number 106 at this point. So uh, it's not yet February. I think in February things will start rolling even faster. Um, and uh, like I say, I, I sell about, um, about 15 or 20 every time that uh, I talk to anybody. So uh, anyway, so if you want to come, please let me know. Also, um, there's a lot of opportunities to serve with this event. There's all kinds of moving parts that to make this work, from guys to man the grills out there that we'll have set up outside. Uh, if you have a spiritual gift of grilling, uh, we want to make use of it and um, in serving your brothers and sisters and uh, a lot of guests that will be there that day. Uh, if you um, have the spiritual gift of making pie, we want to make use of it. Uh, we, we like pie because we know exactly how many pieces we have. If, we tell, if somebody tells us, oh, I'm bringing two pies, well, we know that's 16 pieces of pie. Um, so we know exactly what we've got um, in terms of uh, how many servings and so forth, which is a good thing uh, because we want to make sure everybody, um, that we have enough food, actually more than enough food for everybody. Uh, we've got venison burgers. We've got... Uh, wild hog bratwurst. We'll have squirrel gumbo. Uh, there'll be a whole bunch of stuff to try, uh, and it'll be a whole lot of fun. So, uh, anyway, if you, there's a lot of opportunities to volunteer with that, and uh, we would encourage you to do so. Even if you are not really into hunting or fishing or any of that kind of thing, it is a lot of fun, and uh, and you eat well. Believe it or not, you eat really well. And, um, and we have a good time together. So I encourage you to uh, look into those opportunities. And also, if you, are, if you have some, uh, some, some non-Christian friends, who, um, people who don't know Jesus or who are kind of investigating um, the claims of Jesus, and they would like to have, but they also are somebody who's into the outdoors, um, they would enjoy this. They'll have fun with this. So... Anyway, um, see me about that, if you would, please. Uh, but let's uh, move from here to prayer, and then let's open God's Word together. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your great grace, for Your tremendous glory, and Your perfect holiness, which overwhelms us, Father, as we approach You. We realize how how poor and desperate and sinful we are in light of your holiness and therefore your love shines all the brighter as you welcome us into your family. And Father, we pray this morning as we open your word that you would reveal your glory to us, that you would help us to understand uh, how your love for us should impact uh, our love for other people and that uh, you would cause your word to shine with a great beauty um, before your people today. And Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let me ask you all a question as we begin uh, here. We're going to be in Romans chapter 13, the end of the chapter. But let me just begin here by asking a question. How many of you all have ever made anything and used a mold to make it? Okay. Now, how many of you, as soon as I asked that question, immediately thought, yeah, jello? <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, others of you might be thinking about, if you're a man, you might be thinking, yeah, concrete. 
right? Or uh, something else. Um, I, I, I was, as I was thinking about this example, I was thinking about some of the old school weddings I used to go to. Uh, where uh, back in the 80s and 90s, you know, you had uh, you had salmon mousse, and you'd have that that salmon mold, you know, that you'd kind of flop this salmon stuff out onto a plate, and it was kind of fish paste that was shaped in the shape of a fish, and you eat it with crackers. It was kind of weird. Um, <laughs> and then I and then they don't make it anymore at weddings. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> but then I. Uh, I also remembered back to shop class when I was in high school. You know, a bunch of us 16-year-old boys, we learned how to smelt aluminum and then to pour that molten aluminum into, into a casting, and you'd, you know, out would come these giant coins that we made in a mold, right? You know, had Abraham Lincoln's face on the side, and it was you know, kind of like, like a giant penny that we would clean up and make out of aluminum. They don't do that anymore, I understand, and I'm not quite sure why. Um, but uh, I can't imagine what, uh, what the administrator's objection would be on 17, 16-, 17-year-old boys in molten metal. But, um, but in any case, I mean, what could go wrong, right? Uh, but if you've ever used to make a mold to make anything, what you know is that the point of using one is that the mold causes what you have put into it to take the shape of the mold. And in the same way, we as Christians are meant to be molded and shaped by the Gospel into a different kind of people than what we were before. To take on the shape of Jesus Christ. That God has called us from eternity past. He has adopted us as His sons. He has saved us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, His Son, and His death and resurrection, and He has given us His Holy Spirit to indwell us and to bring us to maturity and to bring us one day to dwell with Him face to face uh, and along the way to transform us into new people. Amen? We are meant to be molded and shaped and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we are meant primarily to be shaped by God's love for us in the Gospel. That because of what God has done for us, that the love that God has poured out on us actually overflows out of our lives into the lives of other people. People around us. Our neighbors, our family, our spouses, our children, our co-workers, all of the people that we encounter in this life are meant to get the overflow, the spillage, if you will, off of God's love, off of our life into theirs. Amen? Does that make sense? Two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And what else? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? And what you see in, chap- in Romans chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, as you're studying through, is that God's love for us, revealed to us in Jesus Christ, changes us into people who love other people like God loves us. But there's a lot to unpack here. And I want to just unpack a little bit of it here with you. At the end of Romans uh, chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. So we want to look at what God's love looks like as it is poured through His people out into relationship with other people. What a love-shaped life looks like, if you will. So look at the text here with me. Verses 8 through 10 we see that love fulfills all of God's commandments. Look at the text. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. 
That is the main thing that we need to see out of these verses is that love fulfills all of God's commandments. All of them. If you look at verse 8, you'll see that love is a debt that we owe to one another. In fact, Paul says it's the only debt that we should owe. Now looking at the context, I don't think that Paul has in mind that he's against every form of financial debt per se. Because in the immediate previous context, what he's talking about has to do with paying your taxes giving respect to the government officials who are over you, respecting your leaders, paying your taxes, paying revenue if that's what you owe, and that's the debt that you owe to the government. But you know, the thing is, that the, the one thing that we have in common whenever we incur a debt is that we have a term. Right? You might get a mortgage from the bank and they say, well, the term of the note is 10 years, or it's 15 years, or it's 20 years, or it's 30 years. But there is coming a day when if you live long enough and if you keep making the payments, you will pay that debt off. Amen? When you, when you borrow money to buy a car, same deal. They might, the loan might be for three years or four years, five years, six years. I don't know how long. But however long it is, there's a time when the debt is satisfied. But this one is different. In this debt, it's an ongoing, lifelong, never-ending debt that we owe to each other. To do what? To love one another. To love each other. You know, you can't, in other words, do like I'm about to do with my taxes on April the 15th and pay the government what I owe them from last year. We're not gonna, I'm not ever going to be settled up completely with everyone in my life to where I don't have to love them anymore. Right? No, no, I'm all paid up. Don't have to love you anymore. You're still spending down the balance I gave you yesterday. Right? We might feel that way sometimes. But at the same time, the Scripture says that we have an ongoing debt to love each other. We continually pay it in how we treat each other, and we do that until the end of our lives. In fact, if you understand the scripture rightly, this is a debt that is never paid even in eternity. Because eternity is the place where love rules in all of our relationships. And we treat each other with love for all eternity. How long is that? Well, let's just say it's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's, you know, it's to quote one of my favorite movies, forever, right? Just like, just like Smalls uh, used to say, it's forever, right? It is forever. It is a long, 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 long time to which the span of your life is not worth comparing your life to that of a mosquito, it's eternity, and we continue to love one another. And what we're doing in this life is, in one sense, practice for that. We are learning how things operate in eternity now. And we owe a continuing debt to love one another. Because, guess what? You know why? Because God's love for us is in the same way unending. Nothing can ever separate us from God's love, Romans 8 told us. And in the same way, therefore, God's love expressed through us to other people is also meant to be unending. And when we love each other, according to verse 8, we fulfill all of God's commandments. And that's the thing about the love that God calls us to. It results from and is characterized by obeying God's commandments. And Paul goes on to explain how that works in real life. First, uh, let's look at this. It says, you can't claim to love other people and commit adultery. Now, 
I just want to say this. Nothing about that statement, by the way, could be further from the way that our culture normally thinks about adultery. In our culture, adultery is kind of romanticized. To be very honest about it. There was a movie that came out a number of years ago uh, with Clint Eastwood, I think it was Meryl Streep, uh, maybe, who was in it, but it's called The Bridges of Madison County. Any of y'all see it? It's about this farmer's wife out in Iowa, Madison County, Iowa, and all the covered bridges out there, and Clint Eastwood plays this photographer, and they carry on this adulterous affair out there, and then he kind of rides off into the sunset, as he often does in his movies, and... Uh, and then this is supposed to be this great romantic encounter. That this is the best thing that ever happened to her life was this, uh, this adulterous affair she has with a photographer who happens to be passing through photographing covered bridges. What? And that's just one movie. There are dozens of movies. If you listen to hip-hop on the radio, which I don't recommend. But if you do, what do they talk about? They talk about women. They talk about money. They talk about drinking. They talk about getting high, right? They talk about violating a whole lot of God's commands. And this is regarded as the authentic voice of urban culture. Really? want to celebrate wickedness but it's romantic and you know after all you have to understand pastor you know these people really love each other really if they really loved each other they would not be committing adultery with each other adultery isn't loving Adultery is destructive of your soul and the other person's soul and of your families and of your children's lives. And it destroys your testimony in front of everybody that knows you. It destroys your friendships. It destroys church relationships. It destroys everything. Love has nothing to do with it. It's just an expression of lust, pure and simple. Amen? And by the way, just, in, just so we're very, very clear on this point, pornography fits in here. It might, not be, it might not be physical contact with the person that you are utilizing for the satisfaction of your lust, but it's adultery. If you watch certain kinds of movies and TV shows because there are all kinds of nakedness that, are, that is on it, it's adultery. It might, the person might not be physically present in the room with you, but you are lusting in your heart and you are committing adultery before God and against your spouse. And it's destructive. And it's sin. And it's not loving to anyone. And in the same way, murder, theft, coveting, all the other commandments that there are in Scripture are easily seen as being exactly what they are. At their root, they are sin. And they are the prideful exaltation of yourself and your desires and your wants and your, your sinful flesh over the life of the other person. That's what they are. And what they are not is anything related to love. I mean, can you imagine standing before God and, and you have committed murder and you say to the Lord, well, you see, Lord, it was because I loved Him so much I had to kill Him. Right? I think I remember from the 80s like a Skid Row song or something like that. I used to love her, but I had to kill her. What? Where does that fit in? 
right? Some of you just had that song flash through your brain right now. I can see it on your face, right? <laughs> um, you're as bad a heathen as me. All right. But here's the thing. You cannot engage in sin and also love other people. You can't do it. Because there is no such thing as a sin which only affects you and doesn't have any effect on anybody else. That is a lie of Satan that, tell, that he tells to people. Oh, it's, just, it's not going to hurt anybody else. It's just going to hurt you. Or actually, it's not going to hurt you because nobody has to know. And by the way, this is going to be, this is going to really make you feel better. That's not true. Love doesn't do any of these things. It says love, verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The reason God prohibits these things in the first place is because they harm not just you and your relationship with God, although that's true and that's primary, but because they harm other people who are not just you. Sin always splashes its out of the cesspool that it lives in onto other people when you jump in. But if you live a love-shaped life, one that is transformed by the Gospel, then you love your neighbors. And love for them keeps us from sinning against them. Love for them keeps us from sinning against them. Now, uh, in case we need more motivation to do what is right, because our hearts have been and are being transformed by God's love for us, then we have more motivation supplied to us in verses 11 to 14. Look at these with me here. Besides this, you know that the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know, I'm convinced that one of the best gifts you can ever get is knowing what time it is. The fact that you do not have all day. That was my dad's expression when he would give us an assignment. Son, work hard. Be quick at this. You do not have all day to make it happen. And the reality of it is, we don't know how long we have to serve the Lord, to honor the Lord with our lives, or when He is returning. And on top of that, He may return at some point after our death. The cemetery is full of people who were too busy to die. Fact. We do not know how long we've got. Here's what we do know. We do know that the hour is now. The time is now to live a holy life. Because it is time to wake up from being asleep. Lots and lots and lots of people kind of halfway perform in their Christian life. Because, you know, well, I, I got saved and, you know, I want to I walk with Jesus, kind of. You know, I don't want to really get serious about getting rid of sin out of my life. I don't want to be completely devoted to Christ, but I do not want to go to hell. I'm with you on not wanting to go to hell. But look at what the Scripture says. Now is the time to wake up and to get serious about Jesus. Jesus. And about walking with Him. 
and following him and casting off sin and walking in holiness. Amen? Now is the time to wake up. Why? Because our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's not just a warning, it's a promise. It's a promise that we get. When is Jesus coming back? I do not know. By the way, if anyone tells you they do know, you can mark it down on your calendar that is not the day. Okay? Somebody says, Jesus is coming back September 18th. You can write on your calendar, Jesus on, on September 18th, Jesus will not come today. Okay? Because the Scripture says, and Jesus says, no man knows the hour or the day when the Lord will return. But here's what we do know. Today is nearer to the Lord's return than yesterday. And yesterday was nearer to the Lord's return than the day before. And every day that we live is one day closer to Jesus returning. And when it says our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, what it means is, is that the day when Jesus comes for us is getting closer all the time. We are nearing the finish line. And some of us think, I think, that we've got like 150 laps yet to go. But we don't know that. We do not know that. And in fact, on the one hand, there's a warning but on the other hand, there's this glorious promise that Jesus could come back today. And our salvation is near. And therefore, we want to run full out. We want to be stretching it. Not, not loping along on, as if we've got, you know, all the time in the world. Because we don't know that. We know that the Lord is returning and each day is one day nearer to His return and to the fulfillment of His promises and the reception of our salvation. We know that. And so we want to give it our all. We want our last full measure of devotion to be poured out to the Lord every single day because today might be the day when our salvation arrives. And we want to live our lives in a way that pleases Him because He is our Savior and He loves us and we love Him in return. And we want to look forward to seeing Him with joy. With joy. You know, Hebrews says, that if, if a person shrinks back at the coming of Jesus, he says, I will not be pleased with him. And then the next verse it says, but we are not among those who shrink back. We are those who look forward to Jesus coming with joy, knowing that the Lord is returning for us. Now look at verse 12 here. When it says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let me ask you a question. What time of, what time of the, in the 24-hour period do you think the police get the most calls? Is it between dawn and dusk? Or is it between dusk and dawn? When, do, when does the phone ring at, down at the station? I mean, maybe somebody has a heart attack, they call 911 and the cops show up, you know, sometime around 4.30. But I'll assure you the night shift is when the cops are out. Why? Because people do their wickedness primarily in the dark. And so the metaphor that Paul is using here is, that, is exactly that, that people primarily do their wickedness in the dark. In the darkness. They don't want to be seen. They don't want to be, they don't want to be caught. They don't want somebody to realize what it is that they're doing. And so in most places, you know, the drug deals go down at night. The drive-by goes down at night. The hookers come out at night. 
the bars open at night, etc., right? Why is that? Because people don't want to be seen doing that which they are justifiably ashamed of. And Paul says, since our salvation is drawing near, it's time to put off the deeds of the darkness. The idea is, you know, like when you come, when you come home, let's say you've been to the gym, and let's say you went and you, you walked, you know, six miles on the track. Or you got on the elliptical machine and you... Um, and you cranked it up to 10, and you rode that thing for 30 minutes, okay? When I do that, you don't want to ride in the car with me because I stink, right? I am like wringing wet, and, and I don't know what happens, but like all of, the, all of the funky bacteria come out all over my body, right? And I stink, I need, a, I need like a bath towel to set on the seat behind me. It's gross, right? And what's the first thing I want to do when I get home? I want to strip off all of that funk and get in the shower, right? And if I'm a little slow on doing that, Karen will remind me, you need to strip off all of that funk and get in the shower, right? You stink, right? Well, the same, th- the same idea is here that... When he's saying put off, what he's saying is take off all of that junk. All of the things in your life which are part of the deeds of darkness. The things that you used to do when you were an unbeliever. To get rid of those things and put on the armor of light. In other words, get dressed in some new clothes. In the purity of the character of Christ if you will. The armor of light. And then he goes on to specify what some of the deeds of darkness are. He clarifies, verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Again, people, generally speaking, are are pretty upstanding in the daylight. Most of the time, people behave themselves in the daytime. It's, It's after dark when all of the gremlins come out. He says, walk like you are living in the daylight all the time. Because guess what? The Lord is with you at all times, in all circumstances, in every choice that you make, He is present. As, Paul, as uh, David says in Psalm 139, where can I go to flee from your spirit? Wherever I go, you are there. And you're with me. And, and recognizing that, we want to live our lives in the light. We want, to, we want to be in the light as Jesus is in the light and we have fellowship with God. And have that, that, that relationship with God that then overflows into how we treat other people. And you can't do that as an unholy person. If you're walking properly like you do in the daytime, then you're fleeing from things, according to verse 13, like orgies and drunkenness. Now, remember the name of this book? It's called Romans. The Romans were champions at orgies and drunkenness. It was what all of the people in the upper crust of their society wanted to pursue every night that it got dark. Some, there were some Roman emperors who held parties for a week where nobody was sober for seven days. And it was just this giant, swinging, drunken bacchanalia for an entire week, if you can imagine. And they encouraged their citizens to do the same thing. What do you think as you look at our culture? Do you think we glorify this kind of stuff? Yeah. We do. We glorify 
Whatever kind of sexual satisfaction you want to pursue, we glorify it. We honor it. We have parades for it. If you want to get drunk, man, we're, we got it for sale cheap. And you can get as drunk as you want to be. Is it a sin to have a drink? No. It's not a sin to have a drink. Or maybe even to have two drinks. But is it a sin to get drunk and to have your mind and your body controlled by alcohol? Yes. Yes, it is. And believers don't do that. We don't do that. That's part of the deeds of darkness. And our lives are to be distinct from everybody else around us. Not just out of love for God, but out of love for our neighbors. You ever known anybody who was a drunk? If you do, ask their family how they like it. Ever known anybody who um, was just wildly sexually immoral? Ask their kids how that's doing. We don't just obey God because we want to obey God. We obey God also because if we love our neighbors, our sin against them needs to stop. And he goes on, he says, he says, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Uh, the word sexual immorality there is a, a theological junk drawer word, if you will. You have a junk drawer at your house and you just have an assortment of stuff, you know, batteries, some of which work and some of which do not. And, uh, you know, old phones and other stuff to just kind of, oh, I don't know where to put that. Oh, put it in the drawer there, <laughs> right? You can't even open the drawer anymore. You don't know what's in there, right? Um, well, this is a theological junk drawer word, if you will, okay? What it refers to is every and any kind of non-husband-wife marital sexual contact. Any kind. Okay, so whatever creativity that people apply to their immorality, this fits in there. Okay, so it has in mind adultery and fornication and lust and pornography and homosexuality and lesbianism and bestiality and every category of stuff that people get into. And there's some weird stuff that is out there that people do. This fits in. This addresses that. And then the next word, sensuality, is actually a more harsh word. It's one of the more harsh words for sin in the New Testament. It's a word that has to do with we not only engage in immorality, but we're no longer ashamed of what we do. That's sensuality. It's someone who sins and, is no, and no longer blushes when they are caught. It's someone who is proud of what they do. Though they ought to be embarrassed. That's another whole level, by the way, of sin. To where you move from engaging in sin to defending and being proud of your sin. That's hardened right there. Not, I'm not overly worried about somebody who sins and is crushed in spirit and immediately confesses. That's one thing. But somebody who engages in sin and when confronted is not embarrassed and is not repentant and who instead defends and exalts their sin as a good thing. Now we're into trouble. Now we're in deep water. And now God, to get them to repent, is going to have to do something cataclysmic in their life. We don't let our sin get to that point. In fact, we back up the truck way before then. 
And we don't, we don't do any of this. Not in any way. Because, not just because we love God, although that's true. And not just because God loves us supremely, although that's true, but also because we love our neighbors too much to harm them by dragging them into this stuff with us. Again, let me give an example. When somebody engages in pornography, have you ever thought about what that does to the person who is in the pictures? Or about the fact that many of the people who are in those pictures are trafficked from some other country for this purpose? And that you are, in some cases, paying money for the destruction of someone else's life. If you love your neighbor, you don't do that. You don't do that. If you love your neighbor, you don't engage in immorality. If you, are, if you love your neighbor, you don't get drunk. If you, are, if you love your neighbor, you don't violate God's commandments. And then look at these last two. These, these, these last two will shock you. Not in quarreling, and jealousy. You have all these ones that we think are like the nuclear bombs of sin, right? And then you got quarreling and jealousy. Like, oh, well, just in case any of these others didn't hit you, <laughs> how about these? Right? I just got to be honest with you. Let me be real transparent, okay? Social media has not been good for me. Um, I like to argue. I do. I feel like everyone in the world is entitled to my opinion. <laughs> right? <laughs> they are. Right? And if you don't believe me, just ask me. I'll tell you. Right? Guess what? In the last probably six months or so, God has been rebuking me about that. And saying to me, you like quarreling a whole lot for someone who claims to be the child of God. You like to fight. You like to get in there and mix it up with people. And I do. May God heal me of that. Not in jealousy either. Not in, because what are you doing when you're jealous? You're saying, well, God gave that to them, but they shouldn't have that. God is unfair, and they don't deserve that. Well, why? Well, because I deserve that. You're criticizing God, and you're criticizing that person in the process of being jealous. And we may not regard these two sins as being the same level of sins as these others because we can all see oh those are bad but God in his word lists them right alongside all the big hairy ones you know why I think that is I think it's because nobody who is engaged in some of the ones we regard as the big hairy ones is necessarily under any illusion, though they might defend it, that they're, what they're doing is the right thing. But somebody who is quarrelsome and jealous, a lot of times we don't even notice those things. And we make excuses for it, and we say things like, well, that's just the way I am. Or we even make excuses for each other. And we say, well, that's just the way so-and-so is. Right? But even quarreling and jealousy because you're exalting yourself over someone else is not loving to them. Verse 14. But put on 
the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. If we're going to live a life that is love-shaped, that is molded to the character of Christ in the midst of a wicked world that is full of sinners who are doing their evil, we cannot imitate them. We cannot fit in to the things that they do. Why? Because sin always results in behavior that harms other people. It always, sin always harms not just you and your relationship with God, but it always harms other people too. And if we love them, then we don't want to use them. We want to help them. So what are we to do instead? Verse 14. Let me read it again. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know, back in verse 12, Paul uses the phrase, the armor of light. I think what he means by that is exactly what he says here in verse 14. Putting on Jesus Christ. How do you do that? What it means is, is that we, we love Jesus and we obey Jesus. And as we obey Jesus, we over time begin to take on His character and we begin to, in a sense, wear Jesus around in public. We begin to look and think and speak and act like Jesus. You know, the idea is of our Christian life is that, is that when people see us and interact with us and talk with us, in every circumstance, whatever it is, that they would say what they said of the apostles. They took note that they had been with Jesus. We want that to be true of us. We want people to say, you know, I am not a Christian, but if I ever became one, I would want to be one like that. I would want to put on the character of Christ. And if we are doing that, we will make no provision for the flesh. I love that phrase. I love it because it confronts me at a very deep place in my heart. Because sometimes I think what I would like to be able to do is to stop doing all of the big sins and hide all of the little ones while still allowing them a back door into my life. Right? I want to, I want to look really good on the outside without actually being good. And so I want to have these, you know, these five or six things that I still allow myself to do, though I know that they are sin. And I, and I might confess them, but I want to like, you know, prop the back door open so they can still get in. And what Paul is telling us is that we need to, uh, as much as possible, seal up the door. Nail it shut. Then get the welder out. Then, then uh, put in studs and drywall over it. <laughs> right? We make no provision for the flesh. There's no back door for our sin into our life to let it back in. Because when we repent of these things, we turn away from them. Does that mean you're always going to be perfect and never going to have any failures after that? No. But it does mean that we don't build a runway for the, for the plane to land. And that if we have built one already, that we bomb it so that it can't land. We make no provision for the flesh. We change the locks. We throw away the keys. We weld the door shut. And now is the time.
Now is the time to wake up. To wake up and to be holy before the Lord. Because God's great love has been manifested to us in a way that we cannot imagine. And, and He calls us to out of that allow His love to overflow to other people. And there is no way to do that and harbor sin at the same time. You can't do it. Believe me, I've tried. You can't do it. You can't straddle the fence between obeying God and pursuing sin. You can't do it. Now is the time. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your great grace and mercy to us. That though we are sinners, though we were far away from You, You have brought us near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And through His death and resurrection, You have made us Your sons. And given us an inheritance, an eternal kingdom that can never perish or spoil or fade. And You have given us Your Holy Spirit by which we are transformed and renewed and forgiven and cleansed and take on the character of Christ. And Father, I pray this morning that there, if there is a man or a woman, a, a young man, a young lady, who has walked along the edge of sin, want to have a little sin and a little Jesus in their life. Or a lot of sin and enough Jesus to stay out of hell. Father, I pray that You would be speaking to their heart right now. That Your love for us might invade their heart and their life to such a point and in such a way that they would say of their sin, I am done with this. And turn from it in repentance and confession and find healing and grace and mercy at Your throne of grace. And Father, I pray also that we would all walk out of these doors, out into a world that is desperately in need of the Gospel and desperately in need of Your love and live a love-shaped life in front of them. That they might draw near to find what we have found. The treasure that is greater than all things in the universe. A relationship with God through faith in Christ. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.